We're going to go to our text for today, Matthew chapter number uh, 7 and also um, Matthew chapter number 26. Matthew 7 and Matthew 26. In Matthew 7, the Word of God says, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few that find it. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36, says, Then cometh Jesus with them into a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here, will I go and pray yonder? And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be very sorrowful and heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. He went a little further. He fell on his face. He prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. And he cometh unto his disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could you not pray with me for one hour? Watch and pray, that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time, and he prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them, and he went away again, and he prayed a third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Today we continue in our series, Broadway, as in the broad roads that can often lead to a wrecked life. And last week we began to explore one of those broad roads. We talked about the broad road that Frank Sinatra so famously sang when he said, I did it my way. And although it's a great song, it's certainly not the way that us as Christians ought to live our lives. Doing it our way is a road that leads to destruction. We are called as Christians to surrender our life to God's way, to surrender our will to God's will. We're called to kill our will. How many of you know that our will doesn't die easy, right? It's like a cat. It's got nine lives. It keeps it's coming back and back and back and back. So today what I want to do is I want to revisit the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus himself gives us an example of how we can surrender our will to the will of the Lord. And I want to title this message this morning very simply, How to Kill Your Will. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you speak to our hearts? Would you make this message relevant and real to every person? Help somebody today. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, you may be seated. As we come to Gethsemane, we come to a scene in the biblical narrative that is like none other in Scripture. This is perhaps the place that best gives us insight into what Jesus is feeling and experiencing in his heart. This lets us probe into the inner thoughts and that Jesus is going through as he processes through the cross that is before him. And this scene may throw more light on what's going on inside Jesus than any of the other biblical narratives, even that of the crucifixion. He goes through a lot, and we start to see that in Gethsemane, where in one place in our text it says, he began to be very sorrowful and very heavy. And if you read this in the original language, it literally talks about a blanket suddenly as in real time of sorrow descending upon Jesus like a weight. In another place in our text, he says, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even on to death. And very literally what Jesus is saying, again in the original language, is I feel the agony of this so much that the pain itself can kill me. 
And matter of fact, he uses in Mark's gospel, he uses the term agony. And agony is a term that describes intense emotional pain, so intense that we know in Jesus' case, capillaries have burst in his skin that caused his sweat to be tinged with blood. But agony is also a word that uh, describes perplexion or being shocked by something. And the question is, how could Jesus have been shocked by the weight of what he was feeling at the time? If he was God, he should have known what was coming, people would say. But the reality of the situation is, even though Jesus was 100% God, we know from our prior studies that he was going through the cross and everything that that entailed, not as God, but as a man who had to do it as a substitute for you and I. He didn't use his powers as God to defeat the cross. He used himself as a substitutionary man. And so why is Jesus perplexed by what he's going through? Because he is experiencing a death that is unlike any other death that had happened before or since. Matter of fact, when you look into Gethsemane, it almost seems like Jesus is afraid of what he's going through. That he is, if you would, less brave than some of his followers who face death with a certainty, with a a serenity about them. When you read in the book of Acts about Stephen, Stephen is somebody who's very peaceful in his death. He looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father and he says, "Lord, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But here we find Jesus not uh, in, a, in, a, in a place of calm or in peace, but we literally find Jesus sweating drops of blood in agony, staggering at what is before him. The magnitude of this death is unlike any other death that anybody has ever experienced or will. There's a cup that goes along with Jesus' death. He refers to that cup when he prays. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup is very literally as commentators would um, would would exegete the verse they would tell you it's the cup of God's wrath the full judicial wrath of God against all injustice and evil doing ever on the earth before and after Jesus Jesus is preparing to take the full brunt of God's wrath against sin in this world and to that we'll never know how that felt we'll never know how it feels to have the weight of omnipotence descend on you out of nowhere and press on you but Jesus is feeling the impact of that weight this cup is so intense that Ezekiel prophesies about the cup in Ezekiel 23 and he calls it the cup of ruin the cup of desolation that causes one to beat their breasts in anguish in Isaiah 51 he prophesies about the cup and he says it's the cup of God's wrath and the bowl of staggering and so here we find Jesus knowing that he's going to or getting a taste if you will of what he's going to experience on the cross and it's a weight that actually causes him to ask is there any any way out of this thing. Jesus is in such agony that he doesn't know how to process the thing and he's relying on people and he's going between people and the Lord to try to get through it. His death is unlike anything. But Jesus gives us a tremendous example here and a tremendous truth. First of all, he tells us that killing our will is not easy. Think about everything that he's going through. But then number two, in typical Jesus fashion, he teaches us how to surrender our will. How do we kill our will and surrender to the will of God so that you and I can come to that place where we are on the narrow road that leads to life? There are three things I want to share with you. The first thing that we got to do if we're going to kill our will is we've got to learn to push past people. 
People will get in the way of the will of God all the time in your life, won't they? Well-meaning people, stupid people, people you like, people you hate, all sorts of different people. Notice our text. It says this, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. And he saith unto his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, who we know are James and John. And he began to be very sorrowful and very heavy. Now, he takes Peter, James, and John. It almost seems like Jesus is always doing this, doesn't it? Every time Jesus has a special assignment, he takes with him Peter, James, and John. And I used to think it was because he loved Peter, James, and John more than the other disciples. In his humanity, he probably had an affinity, a connection with Peter, James, and John that was unlike any of the other connection that he had with the other disciples. But then I realized that there was something deeper going on here. And there was a reason why he always took Peter, James, and John. Peter, as you know, means rock or stone. The law was written by the finger of God in stone tablets. Uh, James, which is the Gentile version of Jacob, right? That means supplanter or replacer. And John means grace. And so every time Jesus took Peter and James and John with them, they were proclaiming his message that he came to replace the law with grace. He was letting us know that there is no other way to salvation than through Jesus Christ. You can only get to the Father through grace in Jesus. Jesus Christ. And so he had them coming along as a witness to what his message was all about. But here's what I want you to see as it pertains to us killing our will. That as Jesus is processing, submitting his will to the will of the Father, he keeps going between the Father and his friends. Did you notice that? He goes and prays, then he comes back. He goes and prays, then he comes back. He goes and prays, and then he comes back. Is that, is that something that anybody can relate to? God, I don't know if this is what you want with me. And you go over to your friend. I would think, what do you think about this? Tell me what you think about this. Then you go back to God again. And he's like, oh, God, what do you think about this? And God tells you the answer. Then you go back to your friend. Well, I was thinking, what do you think about this? And it's this back and forth between the father and our friends. The father and our friends. And in order to kill your will, eventually you've got to push past people. Because people can only give you advice, but they cannot tell you exactly what God wants for your life. you got to get that directly from God. And by the way, if it doesn't align with God's word, you're not hearing from God, right? A lot of people think, well, God told me. Well, God told me. And they'll say, God told me this, that, and the other thing. But there are scriptures that contradict that. God didn't tell you that. You might have saw a spirit, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit, I promise you, right? And so we got to push past people. we got to push past their polls, their opinions, their advice. I remember when God first called me into ministry. I had a plan. Anybody had a plan for their life when they were like, you know, right out of college or in college? You know, everybody's plan is usually about the same, right? You're going to go to college. You're going to get a job before you graduate college all lined up for you. So that way when you graduate, you walk right into your job. And it's usually going to be a good job with lots of advancement, right? You're going to meet the perfect person in college, you know, no baggage. They're going to just be the perfect relationship. And then you're going to go on a honeymoon to Hawaii. You're going to come back. You're going to have a house with a white picket fence, 2.3 kids and a dog named Rover. Anybody have that dream, right? That's the dream that everybody has. I had a dream. And my dream was, I was called into ministry from a time I'm 14. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to work in business first. Going to become really rich. At the age of 45, I retire, work for God for free. That was my plan. And so I said to God, God, this is a good deal. You don't even have to pay me when I start working for you, right? 
And, and, and so everything is going good. I'm working for a big accounting firm, and my wife and I, are, we're engaged. We're building a custom house. Ain't nothing like a custom house, by the way. You know, you get to pick your own Italian marble out, put it anywhere you want. If it's not Italian marble, throw it out. It's no good. And, and so we had everything going just beautiful. I mean, the house was going to be ready when we moved in, and she had a great job, and I had a great job, and we were making bank at age 22. We were making almost $100,000 a year. At age 20, that's a lot of money. We're talking, what, five, six years ago? No. We're talking a while ago, right? And, and so everything is going good. My plan is working really, really well. But then my wife's father gets relocated to Connecticut. And because we were just engaged, she had to move with him because, you know, we, we didn't kind of buy into the whole, you know, living together before you're married thing because we were Christians. And I don't know, the Christianity somehow got in the way of us living together. Go figure, how can Christianity do something like that? You know, everybody thinks it's okay now, but it's really not okay. And so she moved with her family, and, and um, she was planning on moving back once we get married, and we were going to move into the house, and the plan was going to go and everything like that. Well, while they were here, they started going to this church, which wasn't this church at that time, but wasn't in this location. It had another name, a really crazy name. It was called Bright Clouds. That's the worst name for a church you've ever heard in your entire life. People used to call it is, is sitting bull there. They thought it was an Indian reservation. It's bright clouds, right? And so we, we, it's now a faith church in any case, right? And so they started going to this church and I started visiting on the weekends and my pastor knew their pastor and, and through a series of divine events, he makes me an offer that it was easy to refuse. You know, sometimes you make an offer you can't refuse. But this was an offer that was easy for me to refuse. He goes, if you'll be the assistant pastor of this church, I will pay you $400 a month full time. I was like, yeah, no thanks. I got a plan. My plan is that I'm going to make bank. My plan was by the time I'm in my 30s, I'm making at least a million dollars a year, maybe even more at that time. And just, you know, keep it rolling, keep it rolling. And then 45, I go into ministry. You can pay me 400 if you want. You don't have to pay me anything if you want. But then all of a sudden, after I said no, I entered into a garden, a Gethsemane. And my will and God's will began to fight with one another. And interestingly enough, that $400 offer that was easy for me to refuse kept sticking in my head and my heart. And I keep hearing something on the inside of me and go, leave everything and take it. And I'm like, no, shut up, devil. Get thee behind me, Satan, you know. <laughs> this, this can't be God, right? And me and God keep doing, keep doing battle. And finally, I get to a place where here God said, I really want you to do this. I want to give up your plan for my plan. You know, I want you to give up your will for my will. And I'm like, God, you worried about will. I'm worried about bill. We got some bills to pay. We're going to starve to death on $400 a month. Right? And God's like, just do it. Surrender. Kill your will. And so you know what I did? I went to some friends. And I said to some friends, I said, well, what would you do if you were in my situation? Would you, would you leave your career and your path to prosperity and your custom house and all of that for, for a job making $400 a month? And they were like, no way. They didn't say no way. They were like, no way. Right? And so then I went back to God and I said, God, you know, I talked to my friends about it. Nobody thinks this is a good idea. And God said, I think you should kill your will. And then I went to my family. You know, my family, they love me. My family saved. My family understands ministry. They understand the call of God. Surely they're going to understand. I said, Mom and Dad, what do you think about this? What do you think if I just walked away from my promising career as a CPA attorney and just decided to go into ministry now? What do you think about that? And I'd have to move, by the way, away from you guys. I'd have to move all the way to Connecticut. And I got a job lined up in ministry. And, you know, well, what do they want to pay you? Um, $400 a month. 
How much do they want to pay you? I said, $400 a month. They said, did you say $400 a week? I said, no, no, no. I said, $400 a month. And my mom and dad looked at me and said, stick with your plan. Stick with your plan. Now, my mom and dad care about me. They love me. They love God. But see, at the end of the day, in order for you to hear God, in order for you to kill your will, you eventually have to push push past what friends and family are telling you. And it's got to be you and God. Yes, you can listen unless you should listen to friends and families, especially if they're godly, especially if what you're saying has a scripture that contradicts what you're saying God told told you to, then you'd better listen to friends and family. But if it's not something that's clearly identified in the scripture and you feel as though God is telling you something, you're going to have to push past friends and family and people in order to kill your will. And can I just testify for a minute? I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad that I gave all that up to serve God. That was hard at the beginning. At the beginning, it was so hard for about five or six years. We broke open piggy banks to buy diapers and formula for the kids. And I was like, God, what, come on, man. Look at what I, I gave. Oh, what are you doing? This is like not the way it's supposed to be. But how many of you know you got to remain faithful? How many of you know God is faithful? you got to remain faithful. And over the years, God has just done way above what we ever thought was possible. I mean, God has blessed us with a beautiful home. God has blessed us with a great church. We're now in four different locations. God's given us the opportunity to preach the gospel around the entire world. God has been so good to us. But that life, the life that leads, the narrow life, the narrow path that leads to life only comes when you and I will kill our will and surrender to God's will. And that's what it takes. And that's what God wants for each and every one of us. Push past people. Second thing that you got to do if you're going to kill your will is you got to press through in prayer. By the way, before I give you this point, so the other day I'm, I'm typing this out and, and I'm getting, you know, I'm really into it. And, and all of a sudden my phone, a text comes off of my phone and I'm like, oh, who's bothering me now? Because that thing goes off so much, right? And I look down and it's a text from Coles. Coles. And I was gonna, I was gonna ignore the text, and I just got done with the, with the point, push past people, friends and family. And here's what the text from Cole says. It says, friends and family sell. And I thought, God, you're right on time. God, God, you know how to confirm your word. Second thing that you need to do if you're going to kill your will is you need to press through in prayer. You know, we have this kind of crazy view of prayer, right? We think prayer is this kind of moment of serenity. Prayer are these, are, are these times when we're just chilling and we're just relaxed and us and God get to exchange pleasantries. And we, and we think that prayer is this time when we go before God and we're like, God, we are, I'm just so excited that I get to spend a minute with you. Thine is the power. Thou art so holy. Thou art so worthy. We get King James on God, you know. And then, and then we think God has just turned around and says, oh, you're doing such a good job living this Christian life. I'm just so proud of you. And just keep on keeping on, you know. We think that that's what prayer is all about, right? And there are elements to that in prayer. But when you read what the Bible says about prayer, and when you look into the lives of those that prayed, prayer was, was much different than that. 
In the book of Exodus, we find Moses on the top of a mountain. And Israel is, is facing the Amalekites. And, and Moses on the top of the mountain. He's got his hands up. He's praying. And you know what happens to Moses? Same thing that happens to us. He gets tired in prayer. He's like, I just can't pray anymore. And he has to have two friends come over and put stones underneath his arms to keep him up. I mean, this, this was not the kind of prayer that we think when we think about praying. When you read throughout the Bible, you see Paul in 2 Corinthians. I mean, he goes before the Lord three times and he prays about the same thing. He's like, Lord, you got to get rid of this messenger of Satan in my life. He's stopping me from preaching the gospel. This wasn't easy prayer. It wasn't peaceful prayer. In Psalms, have you ever read the prayers of David? If you read the prayers of David, he's a schizophrenic. Have you ever read David's prayers? He's like, God! Why is this happening to me? God, I don't understand why you're letting this happen to me. God, I don't understand why my enemies are winning. And God, I don't understand when you're going to come through. And God, I don't understand how long it's going to be before you respond. And God, kill all of my enemies. And then at the end of it, he goes, but I trust you, Lord. And you, I trust you, Lord. You're my strong tower. It's like, seriously, David? It's not, it's not the kind of prayer that we think, right? In Genesis, prayer is described as Jacob wrestling with God all night Till the sun comes up. Not just talking with God. Not laying in his bed counting sheep and saying the Our Father and the Hail Mary. That, that wasn't what he was doing. He was wrestling with God. That was prayer all night long. And in 1 Samuel we find Hannah. Hannah's at the temple and her, her lip is quivering and she's, she's crying and she's talking to herself. And Eli the high priest looks over and he thinks, she's drunk. Get her out of here. No, she was praying. Imagine prayer being described as being drunk. And then we have Jesus In the Garden of Gethsemane, not having a casual conversation with the Father, but sweating drops of blood in prayer. Here's what I want you to know about prayer. Prayer is where you and I process through what God wants us to do. Prayer is where you and I come to grips. This is what God wants. This is what you want. There's going, to be a, there's going to be a clash of the titans. There's going to be a wrestling. There's going to be a colliding of the wills. And prayer is where you process through all of what it takes to surrender and to kill your will. Prayer is that place. And there are three things that happen. And by the way, in the old days, if you've been around church for a, a long time, you know we used to talk about praying through. Anybody remember that from the old days of church? You, you prayed through. Anybody been around church for that long praying through, people praying through? Somebody like, what is that? Yeah, we live in a social media soundbite society right now, right? Where they actually tell you when you post on social media, don't post for more than 15 seconds because people ignore it after that. Soundbites. That if it lasts longer than 15 seconds, people lose their attention span. Is it any wonder why the church can't pray for more than 15 seconds? In the olden days, we used to call it praying through. And here's what that meant. That meant you pressed into God till you got a peace. You pressed into God till you got a release. You pressed into God till you saw the situation change. You kept pressing in and you kept wrestling and you kept fighting. You got to press in in prayer. If you don't press in, your will will never be surrendered to God's will. Three things happen when you press into prayer that helps you to kill your will. The first thing is that we process our pride. You know the biggest thing that stands in the way of us surrendering our will to God's will? It's our pride. We think we get to call the shots to our life. We think I'm in charge of me. And I guess from an unchristian point of view, from just a human point of view, you are in charge of you. But when you become a Christian, something interesting happens. You no longer belong to yourself. You become somebody else. I'm going to use a really offensive word right now. You become somebody else's property when you become a Christian. 
Say, Pastor, what are you talking about? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirits, which are God's. Here's what it's saying. It's saying, when you're a Christian, you no longer belong to you. You're no longer your own property. You no longer get to call the shots to your life. You now belong to God. God owns you in every single way. And rightfully so. God's the one that gives us breath. God's the one that gives us life. God's the one that sustains us, provides for us, created us, redeemed us. He owns us. It's like that song we sing. It's your breath in my lungs. It's true. If God doesn't exhale, we can't inhale. God, we're God's property. And this, this really is abrasive to our will, to doing it our way. Well, God, nobody gets to tell me what to do. I get to call the shots. Don't, don't, don't tell me how to live my life. Don't tell me how to run my relationships. Don't tell me how to rule my finances. Don't, don't tell me any of that. I get to do that, God. If I want to show up and hang out with you, I'll see you on Sunday, maybe once a month if you're lucky. And if I want to put something in the plate as it goes by, you might get a dollar. But don't you dare tell me how to run my life and orient my life and, 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 and steward my money. This is how we, this is how we have a relationship with God. And God's like, no, 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 you're getting it twisted. You don't understand. When you became a Christian, you belong to me. You're, you're mine. You're, you're my property. Now, this may seem like a really, really restricting place to be. But I remember, remember last week we talked about the beautiful freedom and restriction. Right? We talked about the narrow path. It literally means restrictive path. That as a Christian, you, you don't just get to just do anything you want. I mean, you can if you want. You have free will. But the fact of the matter is there's a narrow path. There, there are parameters. There are boundaries. There are things that God calls us to stay within. Not to hurt us, but in order to give us freedom. And remember last week we talked about the children of Israel as they were crossing over from slavery into the promised land. That they went through the passage of the Red Sea. And that Red Sea passage was a narrow passage, right? Water Water wall on this side, water wall on that side, enemy behind them. God hemmed them in so they could only go forward. That restriction was for their benefit so they could walk into the promised land. God wants to keep you in a place to keep you moving toward the life that he has for you. And so this bothers our pride though. Who's going to tell me how to live my life? But when you realize you're God's property, it works to your benefit. There's freedom in it. In the Bible times, being the property of something was oftentimes indicated by a seal. And so listen to this scripture. Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, a lot of people use this scripture. And they'd say that it means that you can never lose your salvation. And the fact of the matter is you can't sin away your salvation, but you can choose away your salvation. It didn't take you behavior to become a Christian. In other words, you never got to a place where you behaved good enough and God's like, all right, you're good enough now, you're a Christian. How many of you know you can't do that? How many of you know there's no behavior good enough for you to become a Christian? The Bible says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We don't become a Christian because we behave ourselves in. We don't unbecome a Christian because we behave ourselves out. But the danger in not behaving yourself properly and living a godly life is your heart becomes hardened. And the same way you chose yourself in, you can choose yourself out. Now, so that's not what the scripture means. What the scripture is referring to is ownership. A seal that it's referring to, the seal of the Holy Spirit. So in Bible times, whenever they wanted to send a letter, the emperor would take a wax, some wax, drip it on the envelope or the letter itself, and they would take his ring, which had an insignia on it, and he would press it into the wax. And here's what that meant for anybody touching that letter. 
If this letter is not meant for you, don't touch it before it reaches its final destination. And if you do touch it, you tamper with the letter, you run the risk of being put to death by the emperor. Here's what this means when when we understand that we are God's property. When we get to the place where we say, you know what, God? I'm relinquishing my will. I'm going to let you call the shot. I'm your property. You come with, in the words of MC Hammer, I don't touch this, attached to your life. That if anybody messes with you on the way to your destination, they don't just have to mess with you. They have to mess with the king of kings that is behind the seal that is on your life. There's freedom. When you surrender your will to the will of God, there's the freedom of knowing that God's protection is about you. Prayer helps us to process through our pride. Second thing that prayer does, it helps us to process through the purpose. What can happen when you, when you, God asks you to surrender your will and you really want something is your flesh starts screaming out why? Well, why should I do this? Well, why? Well, well, I'm not hurting anybody. Here's, here's, the, here's the crazy reasoning that we have come to in our society. If it, don't, if it doesn't hurt anybody, then it's okay. Sad. Very sad. You know why? Because if it hurts you, that's somebody. And guess what I learned? Hurt people eventually hurt people. So if it's not hurting anybody else, but all it is is hurting you, guess what happens? Eventually you become broken, and anybody in, comes into contact with you stands to be hurt by you because you're hurt. So that whole philosophy is nonsense, right? And so we come to this place where our flesh will cry out, well, I don't understand if it makes me happy, if it doesn't hurt anybody, then what's wrong with doing it? Here's what prayer does. Prayer helps you to process through the purpose of the pain of giving up your will. Because how many of you know there's always pain in giving up your will? One early church father by the name of Origen, he wrote a commentary on Jesus' prayer, uh, specifically on the words, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. And here's what he supposed it meant. He supposed Jesus was praying, it is, if it's possible... For all these benefits will result, that will result from my passion to be procured without it, let it pass from me. And both the world be saved and the Jews not be condemned in putting me to death. But if the salvation of many cannot be procured without the destruction of the few, saving your justice, let it not pass away. Here's what Origen is basically saying. That Jesus is coming to grips with the purpose behind what he's going through. That he's realizing that there is no other way to salvation. There is no other way for the benefits that Jesus' redemption procured for us to pass upon each of us unless Jesus drinks the cup. So he's getting an understanding of the reason behind the request. And this happens when you and I pray. So when we get before God and we want to say, God, you know, I'm married and it's about time my needs get met. And God goes, well, let me just share with you why it's probably not a good idea for you to insist upon your needs as the most important thing. Because if you do that, you won't have a good marriage. But if you surrender your will and put the needs of your spouse first, the purpose will be you'll have a good marriage. God, I don't understand why I I shouldn't get even with that person. They did me wrong. And all of a sudden, you begin to process in prayer. And God says, well, maybe the purpose is so that they can see the light of Christ through you and come to the foot of the cross. You, you, you get into prayer, God. I don't understand why it's not a good pr- 
plan for me to get rich at, by the time I'm 45 and then work for you for free. And you begin to pray and all of a sudden God says, so that other people can become rich in their faith through you before you turn 45. How about that? You, be, you begin to process the purpose in prayer. That's what prayer does. And, 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 and that's how you surrender your will to the will of the Father. But then the third thing that happens in prayer is you eventually come to being at peace with the price. See, what happens to most of us when God asks us to do something that we don't want to do is we're, we're processing the price. We're processing how much pain is this going to cost me? Do I really feel like doing this? What is the downside of this? And if we add all of that up and we feel that it's worth it for us, look at how selfish we are. Then we'll say, okay, God, we'll do it. We're processing the price. Here's what I learned prayer does. It helps you to be at peace with the price. Because the truth of the matter is anytime you kill your will, there's always a price to pay. There is no success without sacrifice. There is no calling without a cup. There is no gain without pain. It'll always cost you something along the way and it's no different when God, when God tells you to do something that your flesh doesn't want to do, it's going to be painful. Go back to Jesus for a minute. The cup, the cup of anguish, the cup of staggering, the cup that causes one to beat their chest because it hurts so much, the cup that is causing Jesus to feel like a a blanket has descended upon him like sorrow, Uh, the cup that is causing his capillaries to burst so that blood is in his sweat, that cup. Why is this happening to Jesus? Not just because his death was different than any other death, but listen to me, because literally... God is pulling back the veil of what he's about to experience on the cross in Gethsemane and allowing Jesus to taste it as if it was happening then before it actually happens. He's getting a foretaste of what he would cry out on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually feeling that in the garden. Listen to what one commentator said. That dreadful sorrow and anxiety then out of which... The prayer for the passing of the cups brings is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of one who lives holy for the Father at the prospect of alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment upon sin, which Jesus assumes. Jesus came, listen carefully, to be with the Father before his betrayal, but hell, rather than heaven, opened before him, and he staggered. He suddenly and literally sees into the abyss. No father, no presence, no communion. Hell rather than heaven opens his gaze, opens its gaze. And Jesus is is flung into two predicaments. One, the absence of love of the father which he's never felt before. And the deeper the love, the greater the separation hurts. But not merely the absence of love, if that weren't bad enough, but the presence of wrath. And just as divine love is immeasurably beyond human love, so is the experience of divine wrath immeasurably immeasurably beyond human wrath. Jesus is experiencing the pain of the cross in Gethsemane before the cross. Why? Here's the reason why. To show us that what it takes for you to surrender your will to God is that your love's got to be greater than your pain. And Jesus is showing us this, that his love is greater than the pain. Let me explain it to you this way. 
Imagine you got to go for a root canal. Anybody ever been for a root canal? Anybody ever not have Novocaine in a, new, in a, in a root canal? <laughs> nothing to put you to sleep, just straight up, just got you without nothing, right? Everybody's got something to numb the pain. Well, imagine if I said to you, you had to go for a root canal. No, nothing. You can't take anything to numb the pain. But you had no frame of reference as to what the pain would be, and so you might ignorantly say, okay, I'll try it. How bad could it be? And then you go for the root canal, and all of a sudden you experience the pain, and you come out of that thing, and you go, if I had known what kind of pain that was going to be, I would have never did it before. Now imagine, I say to you, you got to go for a root canal, no Novocaine. And I was able to magically allow you, before the actual surgery, to experience the pain for two minutes. Magically. You're not in a dentist chair. You're just on your couch. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this blanket of pain falls on you. And I was like, no! For two minutes. For two minutes. The worst pain that you could ever experience in your life. And then, magically, I was able to make the pain lift. And then I said to you, you still want to go through with it? You know what you would say? Not without Novocaine. Not without Novocaine. No way. Here's what was happening in Gethsemane. The Father allowed Jesus to taste the pain of the cross He allowed him to taste the cup of his wrath, actually, literally experiencing what was yet to happen. And then he asked him, do you still want to go through with it? And you know what Jesus said? Not my will, but thine be done. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. That he felt the pain before he actually experienced the cross. Said yes anyway. What happened? One commentator Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, his sorrow abounded, but his love did much more abound. How do you get to a place where you say yes to the sacrifice, to the pain of surrendering to God's will, even at personal cost? It's when your love for great for God is developed. How does that happen? That happens in prayer. In prayer, you process through the price, and you come to, at, to be at peace with the price. Jesus, the third time, walks to his disciples. He sees them sleeping. Here's what he says. Sleep on now. What's he saying? I'm cool. I'm at peace with what I have to go through right now. I don't no longer need you to stand beside me because I've just accepted the fact that in order for me to get the reward that I want, I got to pay the price that's before me. Come on, somebody. In order for you to get the reward that you want, you got to pay the price that's before you. And Jesus did that for you and I. And here's the last thing I want to share with you. Third thing and last thing. It's like the cherry on, 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 the, on the cake, the icing on the cake, if you will. That in order for you to kill your will, you've got to plan to experience the promise. You, you, you can't just process in prayer. You can't just push past people. You've got to plan to experience the promise. Do you know Jesus did? Jesus didn't plan to stay dead. Remember, matter of fact, he said, after three days, he said, they'll kill this thing, I'll raise it back up again. He didn't plan to stay dead. When he said, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit, he was planning to come back again. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, verse number 2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Who was the joy? That was you and I. That was him knowing everything good that was going to happen for us because of what he went through. He planned to come back. you got to plan to experience the promise. I remember after I was at peace with with not being rich by the time I was 45. After I was at peace with giving up my my custom house and going into ministry for $400 a month, I I was praying that night. I was reading my Bible. 
Have you ever done that before? Just kind of like, you know, you need a word from God, and so you play Bible roulette. Has anybody ever done that before? Just open up a scripture, and you go, right? And you think, like, that's God, right? Imagine if I went, and it said, you shall be a eunuch for the rest of your life. I would have been like, oh, no. I mean, you got to be careful, because that's that not necessarily God right there, right? But, but, but this event was God. I opened up the Bible, and I just happened to glance down at this scripture of all scriptures, Mark chapter 10, verse 29. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house. I said, God, I just left a custom one. Or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands. I said, God, I left all that. My family lives where I was going to live. My brothers, my sisters, my family, this is where I'm from. For my sake in the Gospels, that's the key right there. Not, not just leaving it, but leaving it for your sake. If you leave your house because you're mistreating your wife, God doesn't fulfill this promise, right? He says, anybody who's done this for my sake in the Gospels, they shall receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And I read that scripture, and here's what God said to me. He said, it's not going to be easy. He said, but you better expect the promises of surrendering your will to my will. It's on the way. And my, my 22-year-old mind, here's how I thought. I thought, God, wait a second here. I just gave up a 4,000-square-foot custom home. A hundred times 4,000? Come on, God. I said, let's go. Let's do something, right? I, I said, God, look at what I, I gave up. For you, you know what the greatest thing I'm most proud of? It's not what God has blessed us with and how good God has been to us financially and all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm blessed by the hundredfold return of brothers and sisters that God has given me. That's what, that's what I'm blessed by. I'm blessed that God is faithful to his promises that when you and I surrender our will to the will of God, when we kill our will, that we can plan to see the promises. And let me tell you why. It's not because we now qualify. You know, you know that, that religious philosophy, right? Well, God, now I did this, so God, God I gave up my will for you. Payback. God, God, look at that. That was deep. God, God, I'm waiting. It's not that we deserve it. It's not that we earn it. It's not that we're good enough. The reason why we can plan to receive the promise is still because of Jesus. Let me explain it to you this way. Jesus died on the cross and took the penalty of our sin so that God would not have to punish us. Because of what Jesus did, the Bible says God will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. In other words, the punishment and the wrath poured out about Jesus on Jesus was sufficient enough, listen to me, here's good news, so that God will never have to punish you and I who are in Christ for our sin in our life. Isn't that wonderful news? Isn't that good news? We don't have to be punished. But that says nothing about why God should bless us. All it says is why we can have confidence God won't punish us. So if you have a child that does something wrong and you decide to extend mercy to them and not punish them, does that mean the next second you're going to turn around and bless them? So they do something wrong. They curse you out to your face. And you go, okay, I'm not going to punish you. Here's 100 bucks. Anybody going to do that? So they, they do something, you know, whatever. You tell them, don't do X, Y, and Z. They do X, Y, and Z belligerently and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you go, hey, you want some new sneakers? 
You may not punish them because you want to show them mercy, but that doesn't mean you're going to bless them. But here's the thing. So then why, because of the cross, should God bless us? All God should do because of the cross is not punish us. But if all God was interested in is just not punishing us, Jesus could have showed up one day, went to the cross the next day, resurrected the following day, and we'd all be good. None of us would be punished. But Jesus lived an exemplary life for 33 and a half years. He lived a life that was worthy of all of the merits promises and goodness of heaven and earth all of the best of the best here's the great news about being in Christ you not only get the death of Christ credited to your account you get the life of Christ credited to your account so God will not only withhold judgment but he'll gladly bless you with every good thing that heaven has to offer because of Jesus that's why you can expect the promise. Has nothing to do with you. Has nothing to do with me. God hasn't blessed me because I surrendered my will. God has blessed me because of Jesus. Because I'm in Christ. It is grace upon grace upon grace. It is the greatest salvation that we could ask for. And that's what he's done for us. And here's my question. So why wouldn't we surrender our will to him? What's holding us back? Here's what it is. I'm hearing God say this right now. It's because we actually think that our way is better. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad by saying that, but that's actually what's going on inside. Listen, if you are struggling with your will versus God's will, and you're holding on to your will, there's only one reason for it, because you think your way is better. You actually think your way is going to lead to a better life than God's way for you. And you're failing to realize the truth that this text and that this sermon series is all about. Broad is the way that leads to destruction and many go in and find it. But narrow is the way that leads to life. If you find it, the way that's going to give you the life that God has designed for you is not your way. It's His way. It's a life surrendered for Him. I promise you, His design for you it's way better than your design for you. Would you stand to your feet?